be sure to follow us on Instagram at criminalafpod or click on the link in the episode description. In October of 1965, a 16-year-old girl was found emaciated, bruised, burned, lacerated, and dead. Three months prior, she was a generous, lively, and kind soul with a beauty rivaled by few. How did she get in this condition, and who was responsible? We'll soon find out. I'm Dave Jari. I'm Garrett Porter. And this is Criminal as Fuck. Love Shack, baby, love Shack. Did you ever take a song and like change the words, and it totally like changed the whole context of the song? Of course. Yeah. So I was listening to Love Shack the other day, and it brought me back to like high school. And me and my friends, you know, we're at football practice and stuff, and, you know, the B-52s were playing in the locker room. Yeah, that's, that sounds like a great football, yeah. a great pre-pump uh, song before late a Late 80s, dude. early 90s. So anyway, I don't know, we just started, like, kind of, like, changing the words to Love Shack. And, you know, being teenagers, we changed Love Shack to Poop Shoot. Okay? So, <laughs> wherever the word Love Shack comes up in that song, you replace it with Poop Shoot. Poop Shoot. Poop. Baby poop shoot. I got me a car. It's as big as a whale, and it's heading on down the poop shoot. You know. <laughs> Dude, you know? I, I have a visual of a whole bunch of football players just screaming poop shoot, and <laughs> it's messing me up. And the best part is, is like in, in the original song that uh, it goes tin roof rusted. You know, so we just change it to poop shoot. Crusted. Oh. <laughs> oh my god. Anyway, oh, I just thought that was funny. That's actually great. Now that's so that song's been stuck in your head ever yeah, since, yeah, obviously. Because yeah, you came in here singing it. Singing the whole time. <laughs> Poop shoot. Uh, anyway. Alright, what's good everybody? And welcome back to another deranged episode of Criminal AF. This one's gonna be kind of tough. This is a tough one. Uh, thank you all so much for your ratings and reviews this week. It means so much to us. Once again, I am Dave Jari, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Garrett Quarter. How we doing? So I hear you had a pretty eventful couple of weeks there. Oh. Yeah. yeah, first week was great. Yeah. Second week wasn't great. All you right. Know, so what prevented us from uh, recording and stuff. <laughs> no, I hung, hung out with a whole bunch of my buddies, came from all over Wisconsin, Canada, and all that stuff. Been friends with them forever. These are gaming buddies? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We've been playing Xbox since... The OG days. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we always stay close. So, we all got together, went to New York City for a couple days, and yeah. then I come back and uh, I have COVID. Oh, <laughs> so well, there you go. Yeah, yeah, and then I haven't been able to get with back with you yeah. for a while, but I'm, I'm better. The whole family's better. Oh, so. good. Well, we're, we're like, good. Glad it all worked out. Yeah, I guess. It was it was fun while we were there, yeah, but it was yeah. like I'm walking around through Times Square and I'm looking around at everybody. I'm like, I'm fucked. <laughs> 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 and there's like the monkey pox fucking epidemic that's going yeah. on in New York City right now. I'm like, I'm just looking around like, oh, don't don't touch me. Yeah. There's, pe- there's bums walking around in their underwear and shit coughing all over me. I'm like, fuck. Oh, and man. sure enough, yeah. I get it. Yeah, well, at least you had a good time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was a blast. We had a, we had a great time. I'm glad everything worked out for you. Another good thing that worked out was that we have two new criminals on Patreon. Two? Two of them. Oh, two of them. You guys rock. Erica Bupre and Noah Schultz. Welcome to the criminal family. Oh, you bunch of degenerates. Yes, you're both amazing. And thank you so much for joining us. And to become a criminal, just go to patreon.com backslash criminal AF or for a one-time donation to, as Garrett would say, the number one. No, no, it, it 
we are the number one <laughs> podcast in the world. I don't, I don't, like I said, I don't care what the charts say. All right, yeah. it doesn't matter. It's fake news. Fake news. <laughs> uh, so if you want to leave us a, do- a one-time donation on PayPal, use Colonel AF at MorbidCollective.com or click in the links in the episode description. Be sure to check out the social of your choice. It's Criminal AF Pod on Instagram, at Criminal AF on Twitter, and at Criminal underscore AF on TikTok. Now, for the important part. This is a true crime podcast. There'll be talk of murder, rape, torture, arson, and pretty much any crime that would haunt you nightmares at any given moment. There will be detailed descriptions of said events. And there will be vulgar language. Like fuck. There it is. Like fuck. I got it right this time. (laughs) (laughs) We understand that criminal AF is not for everyone, but we just ask that you at least give it a listen, and if it's not for you, well, thanks for checking it out. But if it is, welcome to the debauchery. All right, Dave. Yes. So, obviously, you know, everything in the news today or yesterday has been about the the Trump raid at Mar-a-Lago. Yes. But there was a better thing that happened in Florida just recently. Oh, really? Yes. yes. Oh, my God. So it's not all about the glitz and glamour of, you know, yeah. Mar-a-Lago estates and stuff like that. I yeah. like... Cracking open safes. And I, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. I like when pastors get caught masturbating in a Starbucks patio. No! <laughs> so let's go to Florida, boy. Let's go. A Florida pastor is accused of engaging in a solo sex act while he sat in the patio of a, at a Starbucks, according to Osceola County Sheriff's Office. De- was, it a, was it venti or was it grande? Yeah, there's no way you're filling up a grande. Come on, bud. It's tall. He's filling up a tall. He's tall. He's going to dude. The, the best – wait, before we even go any further, yeah. could you imagine him in the sheet just under there like <laughs> – <laughs> His little fucking black robe. Yeah. There's nothing to see here. Yeah, nothing to well, bless you, child. Yeah. Detectives announced. Oh, child. No. Oh. No, no, no. Oh, you went there. De- de- detectives announced that the arrest Monday, June 27th, but it happened May 9th at a Starbucks on West Osceola Parkway, according to the news release. The coffee shop is in North Kissimmee, about 23 miles south of Orlando. The suspect is a Kissimmee pastor who teaches online ministry classes. <laughs> that just sounds shady right there. What the fuck? Otherwise known as OnlyFans. Yeah. Oh, that, that's, oh my God, pastor OnlyFans. You're onto something. <laughs> the Osceola County Sheriff's Office received a report of a male exposing his sexual organs while masturbating on the patio of a Starbucks. Oh Detectives God. with the Special Victims Unit investigated the uh, allegations, and it was revealed the suspect previously had similar charges that occurred at the same location no the patio the pat, patio's table sit directly outside the shop's plate glass fa, uh, facade and are in full view of patrons and staff the de- de- deputies charged the pastor with exposure of sexual organs and his bond was set at one thousand dollars so this has happened multiple times yeah at the same starbucks do they not like i mean is he i they- want to know what he was wearing that day did you know it? Like, was he in the full black robe with the white collar? Oh, oh God. It's a God-fearing man oh, right there. Man. Let me tell you. Like, why, why would they let him back in? 
they pro- dude, right? I mean, it's a start. You think anybody working at Starbucks like can keep track of? There's a thousand people a day, <laughs> but you would remember the pastor who was jerking, right, who, jerking off yeah, in the, on the right. patio. So I don't know. Hey, remember man. that guy who's been jerking off the last five times he's been here? Yeah, keep an eye oh, on him. Oh no! Oh, what? A, that's ballsy. That's, pastor that's only fans. Pastor only fans. I don't know. I think I would. I'd pay the two bucks or whatever. What would it be? I, it's just, you got to check it out, man. What are you talking about? You're, I'm open to anything. Whatever. Oh, okay. oh I'm going to log in for my daily sermon. <laughs> skeet, 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 skeet. I'm not missing any Sundays, yeah. all right? <laughs> okay, another... I, put, I put my church clothes on. <laughs> like, get ready, sit down in front of my computer. Oh, yeah, he's in. Oh, he's in. Oh, my God, the online sermon. Oh, yeah. Jesus. Let me splash you with my holy water. <laughs> Dude, you could stay here for hours and just keep going. We could just keep going. I forgive you for your sins. Oh my god, imagine his his confessionals are Zoom meetings and then he just he just stands up oh. and throws. <laughs> forgive me, Father Bryce. Yeah. Oh, hold on one second. There's somebody do, at the door. Yeah. <laughs> he gets up. This is bare ass. <laughs> do 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 five Hail Marys and you know. <laughs> Jerk it off a little bit. You'll be fine. You'll all's forgiven. <laughs> all right. Let's get into the story because we could literally sit here all day and just fuck around. Oh, man. All right. So we're going to talk about the story of Sylvia Likens and this this case. Oh, my fucking God. This is just heart-wrenching. It is. Without further ado, we're just going to go right into it and with chapter one. Sylvia Marie Likens, the third of five children, was born January 3, 1949, to carnival workers Lester Likens and Elizabeth Betty Grimes. Sylvia was in between two sets of fraternal twins. Daniel and Diana were born two years former, and Jenny and Benny were born a year later. While all of the children got along generally well, Sylvia and Jenny were the closest, with Sylvia acting as a motherly figure for Jenny who suffered from polio and had one leg weaker than the other. Jenny walked with a noticeable limp and was required to wear a steel brace on her leg. She was considerably more timid and insecure than her older sister, so Sylvia was very protective of Jenny. The Likens family struggled financially, causing an unstable home life. Sylvia's parents sold candy, beer, and soda with the traveling carnival, so the family was often on the move living in no less than 14 different locations by the time Sylvia was 16. Daniel would travel with their parents while Diane, Sylvia, Jenny, and Benny stayed behind with relatives, usually their grandmother, out of concern for their safety. When Sylvia became a teenager, she took odd jobs to help support her family, occasionally accepting work as a babysitter, running errands and doing laundry for friends and neighbors. Cookie, as her friends called her, had an infectious laugh. She was friendly and confident, although she kept her mouth closed when smiling due to a missing front tooth. Sylvia was described as a beautiful girl, with long, wavy, light brown hair that went past her shoulders, and a beautiful exuberance that lit up the room. Sylvia and Jenny were inseparable. 
They did everything together, including making several trips to the local roller skating rink. Sylvia would help Jenny skate by holding her hand as Jenny skated on her strong leg. By 1965, the Likens family would once again face another hardship. Lester and Betty had separated, and Betty moved to Indianapolis with Sylvia and Jenny. In July, Betty would be caught shoplifting and was jailed, leaving Sylvia and Jenny to care for themselves. Sylvia and Jenny were strolling through the neighborhood with Darlene McGuire, a young girl the two had recently met, when they came upon 17-year-old Paula Banaszewski, described as an overweight, aggressive girl with a mean streak. Paula invited the girls to her house where the girls shared laughs and soda pops. She then asked if Sylvia and Jenny would like to spend the night. Since Betty was in jail and the girls not wanting to go back to their barren, run-down house with no one to go home to, they accepted. The next day, Lester, having been informed of Betty's arrest, came to pick up Sylvia and Jenny, but no one was home. He searched the neighborhood until he came upon the girl's friend, Darlene, who had told them that they were at the Banaszewski house. It was late in the evening by the time Lester had gotten to the girls, and the home's owner, Gertrude Banaszewski, who went by the name of Gertie Wright, invited Lester inside. Since it was late, Gertie offered Lester to spend the night in the dank and dusty living room, saying he and the girls could leave in the morning. The next day, Lester asked Gertie if the girls would be able to stay with her for a fee of $20 per week. He was about to leave for the carnival, and with Betty still in jail, older sister Diane living on her own with a small child and in no financial condition to care for Sylvia and Jenny, and Benny already staying with their grandmother, it would just be easier. Gertie agreed and told Lester that she would care for the girls as if they were her own. Upon leaving, Lester turned to Gertie and gave some fatherly advice. You'll have to take care of these girls with a firm hand because their mother has let them do as they please. These words would come back to haunt him. Now, Betty Likens, together with her daughter Sylvia and Jenny, had recently moved into one of the many rundown, box-like little houses in the neighborhood. Uh, Betty and Lester were recently separated, and the family had moved often as their father searched for jobs uh, to keep the family's financial head above water. They had previously resided in this very area. So, shortly after the girls went to Gertie's house, uh, Betty was released from, from jail and reconciled with Lester and joined him on the carnival circuit. Now, Lester... Uh, a year later would be asked if he had inspected the home in which he left his two children. And his response was, I didn't want to pry. All right. If he had looked around, he would have found that the household had no stove. uh, There weren't enough beds for the people who were actually living there. And the kitchen had less than three spoons for all of these people living there. Now, during Sylvia's stay, the spoons went down to only one. Not to mention that the house was such in disarray and decay and dust and mold and everything else. 
Regardless, Lester placed his minor daughters in the care of a woman that he had known for less than a couple of days. He did know, however, that she had the responsibility of caring for a large family, so she, he, Lester figured, oh, you know, she's got all these kids, she must be a good caretaker. Now, the woman, Gertrude Beneshevsky, um, known as Gertie, she lived alone with her seven children. There was Paula, who was 17, Stephanie, 15, John, 12, Marie, 11, Shirley, 10, James, 8, and Dennis. God damn, that's and, a lot. <laughs> yeah. And Dennis, who was one, and has been described as a haggard, underweight, asthmatic. She's a chain smoker, suffering from depression due to the stress of three failed marriages and six miscarriages. In addition to the sporadic child support checks that Gertie would get from her ex-husband, she occasionally performed odd jobs for neighbors and acquaintances, such as sewing and doing laundry, uh, similar to what Sylvia had done to earn money. It's just a horrible life for a young kid to grow up in. Like, I've always wondered when you're driving in traffic and you see somebody on the side of the road and stuff like that, I, I always go and just be like, how... There's you have nobody else to help you. You're by yourself completely. No family member to stay at, and all that stuff. And I, I've always wondered how people get in those predicaments. Like how how were Sylvia's family didn't have a grandparent that could help out or a- anybody? Well, they did. Benny, who's the youngest, who was Jenny's twin brother, mm-hmm. he actually stayed with the grandmother. Now the oldest brother Daniel would travel with the father on the carnival, and Sylvia had an older sister, uh, Diana who was out on her own, yep. had a child, and but she was in no financial position. To take on the to extra respe- on. Right. responsibilities, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's horrible. Yeah, but as we talk about in the story, basically Sylvia and Jenny met Paula, the 17-year-old, through a, a mutual friend, and since Betty was already in jail, they offered them to stay there overnight. And the girls were like, well... We have nothing to go home to. Yeah, we have so. one spoon in the drawer, probably right. no food in the... So we might as well just like sleep over, you know, and then that's when uh, Lester came looking for them. Hey, since they already slept here one night, why don't you keep them for $20 a week? The life of a traveling carny, yeah. I guess. So we're going to start picking up on what happens to the girls, and now I just want to make a, make a note that... The abuse and whatnot didn't just occur, like, overnight. Like, Sylvia and Jenny, they stayed at Gertie's house for from July to October. And it was a gradual process. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't just, like, overnight, start beating the shit out of her and everything. It builds up. Yeah, you're not going to, you're also not going to stay there if the first night you start getting. Right. So, we'll talk about that in Chapter 2. Gertrude Van Fossen was born in Indianapolis, Indiana, and was the third of six children. On October 5, 1939, Banaszewski saw her 50-year-old father die from a sudden heart attack. Six years later, she dropped out of high school to age 16 to marry 18-year-old John Banaszewski, with whom she had four children. Although John, an Indianapolis police officer, had a volatile temper and occasionally beat his wife, the two would remain together for 10 years prior to their first divorce. Following her divorce, Gertie married a man named Edward Guthrie. This marriage lasted just three months before the couple divorced. Shortly thereafter, Gertie remarried John, with whom she had two more children. The couple divorced for a second time in 1963. 
Weeks after her third divorce, Gertie began a relationship with a 22-year-old named Dennis Lee Wright, who also physically abused her. She had one child with Wright, Dennis Jr. Shortly after the birth of their son, Wright abandoned the relationship. Shortly thereafter, Gertie filed a paternity suit against Wright for financial support for their child, although Wright seldom contributed to the care of their son. Although never married to Wright, Gertie would go by his last name so her baby would not be known as illegitimate. Shortly after the July 4th holiday, the sisters moved into 3850 East New York Street in order for their father, and later, their mother, who reconciled after being released from jail, to travel the East Coast with the carnival until they returned to collect Sylvia and Jenny in November of that year. During the initial weeks in which Sylvia and Jenny resided at the Banaszewski household, the sisters were subjected to very little discipline or abuse. Sylvia would sing along to pop records with 15-year-old Stephanie Banaszewski, and she willingly participated in housework at the residence. Both girls also attended Sunday school with the Banaszewski children, with the pastor commending Sylvia's piety. This normalcy all came to an abrupt halt two weeks later, when Lester's expected payment of $20 didn't arrive on the day it was supposed to. Gertie, enraged, screamed at Sylvia and Jenny. I took care of you two bitches for nothing. Then forced both girls to lay on the bed bottomless as she whipped their bare buttocks with a police belt John Banaszewski left behind. The check for $20 arrived the next day. Both Sylvia and Jenny would become a target of Gertie's wrath whenever she became agitated, mostly over fictional issues. The following week, both girls again were punished with the police belt when Gertie suspected Sylvia of influencing the Beneshevsky children to shoplift. There was no proof of this, only that Sylvia's mother had been arrested for the act. While Jenny would get punished from time to time, Gertie's rage would soon be directed solely on Sylvia. Accusations of dishonesty, uncleanliness, and sexual promiscuity would all be reasons for Gertie to abuse Sylvia. None of these accusations were true, however. Sylvia had naive honesty, was considerably well-kept considering her family's financial situation, and was a virgin, although perceived as flirtatious. The root of Gertie's anger is believed to have come from jealousy. Jealous of Sylvia's natural beauty, and all of the accusations she bestowed upon Sylvia were all things her own children had been guilty of, especially 17-year-old Paula, who had a brief scandalous relationship with a married man and became pregnant. After one church supper, Paula had told Gertie that Sylvia had consumed more than her fair share of food. So Gertie, along with her children, devised a punishment for her. Sylvia's hot dog was passed around the dinner table, with each of the seven Beneshevsky children adding heaping amounts of condiments to it. Sylvia was forced to eat it, and abruptly vomited the contents. She was then forced to eat her own vomit, as to not waste any of the food. While all of the abuse Sylvia had received up to this point seemed terrific, we have to look at the time. Physical punishment of children was a commonplace. 
Other parents were adults wouldn't blink an eye at a child being lashed with a belt, and the children were accustomed to it as well, which may explain why Sylvia and Jenny didn't say anything of their abuse to their parents when they popped in for a visit one day in August, as they were passing through with the carnival. Or it could have been that Sylvia and Jenny were actually fearful of Gertie, and were afraid to say anything to their parents for fear of retribution. Whichever the reason, the abuse Sylvia had received up to this point was nothing compared to what she was about to endure. After their parents left, the girls were talking about boyfriends, and Sylvia admitted that she once allowed the boy to lay on her bed. Gertie flew into a rage and shouted, You're going to get pregnant, and kicked Sylvia as hard as she could in her crotch. As we will learn, this area of her body would be a focal point throughout Sylvia's abuse. Sylvia sat down on a chair, and Paula, who was actually pregnant, kicked Sylvia to the floor saying, you ain't fit for a chair. Sylvia, angered by the neglect she was receiving to this point, spread a rumor in school that both Paula and 15-year-old Stephanie were prostitutes. Word spread quickly, and 15-year-old Coy Hubbard, Stephanie's boyfriend, flew into a rage. He punched Sylvia in the face and used some judo moves on her, flipping her against walls and on the floor. Coy would make this a regular occurrence, practicing his judo moves on Sylvia, both in school and at the Banaszewski home. When Sylvia arrived home that day, she had another beating waiting for her when Gertie would lash her with the police belt. In retaliation to Sylvia's remarks, Gertie spread rumors to the neighborhood children. She told 13-year-old Anna Sisko that Sylvia had called her mother a hooker. Anna, who was once good friends with Sylvia, viciously attacked her. Now, we talked about adults and other parents turning a blind eye to what we now classify as child abuse. Sign of the times, I guess. There was a middle-aged couple that had two kids, Raymond and Phyllis Vermillion, who moved next door to Gertie in August of 1965. Now, Phyllis worked nights at an RCA plant and needed a babysitter for her children. So she visited Gertie thinking, all right, this mother of seven, you know, she already took in two boarders. She might be a good person to care for the children, you know. So Phyllis and Gertie, they sat down at a table and drank coffee while there's absolute chaos is going around in the house. The kids are screaming at each other, the baby fussing and crying. Absolute fucking mayhem. Okay? I, couldn't, I couldn't even imagine. Yeah. Two kids is, a, is enough. <laughs> I couldn't even imagine, dude. So while she was there, Phyllis noticed a slim, pretty, but timid and ner- nervous looking girl who had a black eye. So Gertie turns and looks at her. She's like, ah, that's Sylvia, right? Now, Paula, the 17-year-old, she filled the glass with hot water and threw it at Sylvia, saying, I gave her the black eye. Okay? Red flags everywhere. Uh, Yeah. Correct? Yeah. So Phyllis, she left and obviously opted not to use Gertie to watch her children. But she... Uh, Who would at that point? But she also didn't report the abuse. So in early October, Phyllis paid Gertie a visit again. This time, she saw Sylvia, who looked emaciated and dazed, and had another black eye, plus a swollen lip. Paula admitted to Phyllis that she beat her up, and 
Paula then again began hitting Sylvia with a belt right in front of this woman. Okay. Again, Phyllis leaves the house. Doesn't report anything. Without believing that she had seen anything that the police should know about. Should know about. So here, like, here's a question. If a supposedly normal, responsible adult could not recognize these actions as, as abuse, why would anyone expect a timid teenager like Sylvia to report it herself? Now, you got to think about the, the, the time that we're in. Discipline was common, you know. You were you were hit as a kid, right? Oh, yeah. Got your ass. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I caught a few licks. Now, your parents discipline you. This woman is disciplining you. Obviously, a woman came over who was from the outside, saw it, didn't say anything, you know, because people up to this point were, why didn't Sylvia like just leave? Leave? Why didn't she run away? Why didn't she like escape? Report it? You know what I mean? Because if everybody in her circle is beating the fuck out of her or whatever, you would think that for her it would be kind of normal, I guess. I don't know. What's your thought on it? It's hard to put yourself in a situation like that because I know I would like to say that if I'm in that situation, I would be like, I'm fucking I'm out of here. But you you could like it's easy to say that without being in her shoes. Mm -hmm. So I can see why she said she had nowhere to go. But I would like to think that if I was in those shoes, I would be like, I'd rather be on the street than right. eating a hot dog. Plus, I mean, Gertie's mental health at like six miscarriages, seven kids. She's she's clearly nuts. And it's easy to put your fust Once you start putting frustration, your frustration out on one child, it's easy to I can see how it's easy to keep using them as a punching bag. And especially when your kids have no respect for him either. Mm-hmm. And, and she's getting abuse, not just from the matriarchy of the family, but every kid probably down the line the three-year-old's probably spitting on her and stuff like that too right. if everybody sees it it's, it's okay so it's, it's just a horrible situation well it only gets worse and more people um are either told or witness uh the abuse and don't do anything it's crazy too because nowadays if, if you hit your kid the wrong way in a, a mcdonald's or whatever you, cps will be like you know child protective services are it's showing like, oh up my on God. your door blasphemy yeah but which i agree with listen i, I totally agree with i don't hit my kids so but yeah. that's that's everybody's you know how you parent is how you parent i guess but yeah we'll uh we'll actually go into a little more detail in chapter three By mid-September, it was becoming more common for the neighborhood kids to come around to torment Sylvia. Gertie was still spreading false gossip about her, and more were coming to attack Sylvia. Gertie would also start demanding that Jenny participate in the assaults. In one particular instance, Gertie told Jenny to punch her sister. When Jenny refused, Gertie hauled off and slapped her across the face, knocking Jenny to the ground. Reluctantly, Jenny would participate, but would use her weak hand as not to inflict any pain on Sylvia. In early October, Sylvia was in need of exercise clothes for her physical education class, and Gertie refused to buy her any. A day or so later, Sylvia came home with a gym outfit from school and told Gertie she found it. Not believing her, Gertie pressured Sylvia with questions, and Sylvia reluctantly admitted to stealing it. For this, Gertie slapped and kicked Sylvia in her crotch, 
then lashed her with the belt. Unable to let it go, Gertie burned Sylvia's fingertips with a match and beat her again. She then forced Sylvia to quit school. From that point on, it was fair game for the Banaszewski children and their friends to burn Sylvia as they pleased. They would extinguish cigarettes on her skin and flick burning matches at her. At one point during the assaults, Paula broke her hand punching Sylvia and had to get a cast. She then used the cast to beat Sylvia. The hitting, kicking, judo moves, and burning would increase, but nothing would compare to what happens next. When Sylvia and Jenny first moved into the home, Sylvia had a little extra cash from doing odd jobs and collecting empty soda bottles. Gertie now proclaimed that Sylvia had the money because she was a prostitute. She gathered all the children and their neighborhood friends and forced Sylvia to strip tease in front of everyone as she cried. When Sylvia was naked, Gertie made her insert a soda bottle into her vagina. Unaware that Gertie was the one who forced Sylvia to do this, Stephanie, who had just arrived home, ran into the room and beat Sylvia. Sylvia began wetting the bed, whether this was from psychological trauma or the abuse to her stomach and genitals is unclear. But Sylvia was forced to stay in the basement with the dog because, quote, she was too dirty to live with humans. Paula took it a step further and refused Sylvia to use the bathroom, thus forcing her to live and sleep amongst her own urine and feces. The family would allow her to bathe occasionally, but not in a practical sense. They would draw scolding hot baths and force Sylvia to lay in the burning water as Paula rubbed salt in her open wounds. They wouldn't allow Sylvia to wear clothes, so the times that she was allowed out of the basement, she would be naked. She would go days without food or water, forced to watch the others indulge. One instance, she was allowed to eat soup, but she had to use her fingers. Starving, Sylvia began sucking the soup off of her fingers. Then the soup was ripped away by 12-year-old John Beneshevsky. Later that evening, John forced her to eat the shit out of baby Daniel's diaper. Sylvia was allowed to sleep upstairs in a bed one night, under the stipulation that she be tied to the bed so she couldn't use the bathroom. It was Gertie's lesson to teach Sylvia not to wet the bed. Expectedly, Sylvia wet the bed that night. The next morning, Sylvia was once again forced to strip naked and insert a soda bottle into her vagina. This time, Gertie said, You branded my daughters, now I will brand you. Forcibly tied down and gagged, Gertie and neighborhood boy Ricky Hobbs heated a needle and began carving words into Sylvia's stomach. By the time it was said and done, the words read, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, along with the number three, which was meant to be an S for slut. Sylvia was forced back into the basement, and Coy Hubbard once again used her for judo practice, throwing her against the walls and the floor. Later that night, Jenny snuck down into the basement, and Sylvia said to her, I'm going to die, I can tell.
Now, as we talked about before, you know, there's plenty of times where people could have intervened and they hadn't. Now, sometime in August, the girls had met their older sister, Diana, in the park. Actually, on two occasions during their stay. Uh, the first meeting, the two girls told their sister of the abuse that they were receiving, uh, especially Sylvia. Now, Diana played it off because, as we said, punishment for children was commonplace, and Di- Diana figured that the girls were exaggerating. Okay? Now, the second meeting occurred in September with Diana, Sylvia, and Jenny. Um, now, Jenny and Sylvia were joined with 11-year-old Maria Beneshevsky, uh, presumably as a spy for Gertie. Yeah. The two girls didn't report any further abuse to Diana. In fact, they said that everything was going fine. Yeah, of course they did. Fucking sick. Um, Diana offered the girls a sandwich, which Sylvia gladly accepted because by this point, she was being refused food by Gertie. Uh, when they returned back to the Banaszewski house, Gertie asked Maria if the girls ran their mouth to their sister. And Maria said no, but uh, Sylvia had a sandwich. Sylvia's punishment for this gluttonous act uh, was a scolding hot bath. And when Sylvia passed out from the heat, Gertie would try to wake her back up by smashing her head against the cast iron bathtub. Yeah. So, uh, Dude, it's giving up Carrie's mom vibes. It's, yeah. it's oh, sick. It's absolutely horrible. And her, and you know what? Di- Diane, her sister, it, it's like one of those things where it's like out of sight, out of mind, right? She doesn't want to have to put up the responsibility of, of taking care of these kids. She has her own financial problems and struggles in her own family and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's, it's your sister, man. Right. Like you, you clearly had to have visual evidence that something was going on. So around the, around the beginning of October, Diana had, a chance encounter with Jenny. I guess Jenny was going to the store or whatever, and they kind of crossed paths on the street. And Diana asked, you know, where's Sylvia? And Jenny replied, I can't tell you or I'll get in trouble. So now, Diana, she at this point, uh, Diana didn't know where the girls were staying. She didn't know where the Banaszewski house was. Uh, Diana eventually discovered where her sisters were staying and she visited the property in an attempt to initiate contact with Sylvia. Gertrude, or Gertie, however, she uh, refused to allow Diana entry into the house. And Gertie had told Diana that she received permission from their parents not to allow either of the girls to see her. Uh, Then she ordered Diana to leave the property or she would be arrested for trespassing. Where's Lester at this point? Well... They've actually popped in a couple of times as well. Oh, my God, man. Yeah. That poor girl. That poor girl. And we have to address the, the fact that of what she did. In the living room? How did that many people see that go on and not no one said anything to their parents? or like? Well, there was one girl who said something. I, I can't remember which one, but one girl, one neighborhood girl said something to her mother. Not really so much in detail, but basically, like, Sylvia is being beaten or something like that and the mother was like well what did she do is she being punished yeah, what, you know? yeah. what what did she do what was wrong what, yeah. what caused it it's not even about being punished though at that age if i witnessed someone using a soda bottle in that way i would have it would have blown my mind and everybody would have heard about that I, yeah it's disgusting so diana actually does make an attempt to get into the household so she contacted uh, basically the Department of Children and Families that we have now, yep. and they sent over a caseworker, knocked on the door. They said, oh, you know, we're here about Sylvia Likens. 
um, can we speak to her? And Gertie's like, oh, she ran off with some boy. She doesn't stay here anymore. Mm. And caseworker was like, oh, okay. Okay. And left and closed the case. Jeez. Oh, she ran off. Okay. See you later. Like, God damn Like, she's right there. She, she, by this time, she's, she's tied up in the freaking basement. In the basement with, covered in feces, dude. Yeah. Oh, man. So that's another failure there. Now, the reverend from the family's fundamentalist church visited the home in September. Uh, this is the same reverend who, earlier in the story, complimented Sylvia on her piety. Now, he and Gertie chatted a bit while sitting in the, the living room in her worn-down couch and cobwebs in the corner, you know. Um, so Gertie complained to the reverend about a bunch of things, such as her husband's failure to pay child support, uh, her numerous medical medical conditions, and all the troubles that she's having with the kids. And she told the reverend that Sylvia was by far the worst of them all, saying Sylvia has been skipping school and making advances on older men for money. So the reverend, you know, he remembered Sylvia, you know, the pretty girl who had come forward on you know, Sunday to confess her faith. So he asked to speak with her. And Gertie automatically says, ask her sister. And Jenny's like all huddled up in the corner, yeah. you know. Now, Jenny, who by this time has been conditioned yeah, to lie, to lie, because she she doesn't want to be end up like right. Sylvia. So she mechanically recited, you know, some rubbish, you know. Uh, oh, you know, Sylvia tells lies. And at night after we all go to bed, she slips down and raids the icebox. Now, the reverend, she played. Uh, he prayed with Gertie and he left. Mm. Okay. Wow. Thanks for your help. I'll see you. So he came back for another visit a few weeks later. And again, Gertie complained about all the problems she was having with Sylvia. She told the reverend that Sylvia said at school that Paula is going to have a baby, which Paula was pregnant. Yep. Uh, but I know my daughter and I know Sylvia and Paula is not going to have a baby. It's Sylvia. So this time the reverend... This th- woman is in fantasy land at yeah. this point. Absolutely. Well, well, as we talked in the story is that Gertie is basically taking all of her children's downfalls and casting them yeah. as being Sylvia's downfalls, you know? Yeah. yeah, so the reverend didn't ask to see Sylvia this time, who is now being kept in the basement. And he again prayed with Gertie and he left. So now three adults up to this point had the opportunity to help Sylvia. Diane was the only one who made, at least made an attempt. Okay. Now it gets worse. On one occasion, leading up to the carving incident, uh, Gertie held a knife in her hand and she challenged Sylvia to fight her. And Sylvia was like, I, I don't I don't know how to fight. So Gertie, in response, took the knife and slashed Sylvia across her leg. It's one of those ones where you're just rooting for that girl to kill her in her sleep. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I know she's so terrified at that point. But that's that's I I would hope that that's what I would do in yeah. that situation. Just wait till she sleeps and just what yep. right in her right in her throat. So then, uh, after burning, I am a prostitute and proud of it into Sylvia's abdomen. Uh, Gertie taunted Sylvia by claiming she would never be able to marry due to the words carved in her stomach, and she's like, you know, what are you gonna do now? You can't get married now. You know, what are you going to do? And Sylvia, like, crying, she was like, I guess there's nothing I can do. You know, and later that day, after being carved, Gertie paraded Sylvia 
out to the neighborhood children. And she said that Sylvia had gotten the inscription on her abdomen because she went to a sex party. It's, it's weird how there's an obsession with sex, too, you know, involved in this. It's, it's weird. It's, there's a sexual thing going on way more than just the abuse, like the physical abuse and stuff like that in Gertie's, like, mind. Mm-hmm. There, there's there's something there about Sylvia that you almost want to, like, so like is, she, is she fighting her feelings? Like, is she sexually attracted to Sylvia and she's fighting those feelings? I think it, I think it comes down to jealousy. Y- yeah. You know? Jealousy, too. Right, because, you know. Like we said, Gertie, she has all these failed marriages, and obviously her life is not freaking, you know, wonderful. Yeah. You know, and here's Sylvia. She's 16. Uh, by all by all descriptions, she's a beautiful girl. Yeah. Her family's just a bunch of white trash yeah. fucking right. judo champions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, I think she gets a lot of abuse purely out of jealousy. The worst part about this story is that girl didn't even have a chance. From the moment she was born, from the family she was born in, and it just goes to show you, who, who like you don't have. It's a roll of the dice every time you come out. Yep. So we'll uh, we'll get into the thick of it here in chapter four. Gertie was discussing with the children one morning about dropping Sylvia off at a waste lot. During this conversation, Sylvia saw an opportunity and tried to run out the front door to escape. The frail, mutilated Sylvia made it to the door when Gertie grabbed her from behind. She dragged Sylvia to the kitchen and hit her across the face with a curtain rod. John brought Sylvia back down to the basement and tied her up. Gertie then went down and offered Sylvia some crackers. Give it to the dog. He needs it more than I do, Sylvia stated. Enraged, Gertie repeatedly put Sylvia in the stomach. She then forced Sylvia to write a letter to her parents, saying that her injuries were caused by a group of boys that she had sex with for money. The following day, Gertie and John continued taking turns beating Sylvia. Coy Hubbard came over, went into the basement, and struck Sylvia in the head with a broomstick, knocking her unconscious. Sylvia awoke during the middle of the night and began banging a shovel to try and get someone's attention. Neighbors heard the banging, but did nothing. On October 26, 1965, Sylvia was brought upstairs for a bath. This one was a normal, warm bath. Stephanie and Ricky Benashevsky removed her from the bath and both realized that Sylvia wasn't breathing. Stephanie tried to apply mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, but it was far too late. Sylvia was dead. Ricky had to run to a payphone to call the police because the Benashevskys didn't have a house phone. When police arrived, Gertie immediately handed the letter that Sylvia was forced to write. But Sylvia's injuries didn't match the account. Her injuries were induced over a period of weeks, if not months. Things didn't quite add up. While one police officer was talking with a distracted Gertie, Jenny went up to another officer and whispered, Get me out of here, and I'll tell you everything. In all, Sylvia Likens was emaciated. She was starved and dehydrated. 
She had numerous bruises, lacerations, burns, and open sores throughout her body. She had been burned with cigarettes over a hundred times. Her fingernails were torn back from her fingertips. Her bottom lip was nearly severed off. Her vaginal area was mutilated from the repeated forceful kicks and forced insertion of bottles. And of course, the burned inscription of, I'm a prostitute and proud of it. Gertrude Beneshevsky was arrested for first-degree murder, along with her daughters, Paula and Stephanie, her son John, and neighborhood boys Coy Hubbard and Richard Hobbs. Other children were charged with injury to person. They were Anna Sisko, Judy Drake, Randy Lepper, and Mike Monroe. The latter all confessed to participating in the abuse. When asked why they would do such a thing, they all responded, Gertie told me to. Prior to trial, the charges of injury to person against Cisco, Drake, Lepper, and Monroe were dropped, as were first-degree murder charges against Stephanie Beneshevsky. John Beneshevsky, Coy Hubbard, and Richard Hobbs were all convicted of manslaughter. They each were sentenced to 18 months in a juvenile detention facility. Paula Beneshevsky was convicted of second-degree murder. She appealed the verdict and was granted a new trial. She instead pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter and only served two years. For Gertrude Beneshevsky, she was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. She also appealed and was granted a new trial. She was again found guilty and sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. In December of 1985, she was granted parole. Gertie was now a free woman. She changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen and moved to Iowa. Her freedom would be short-lived, however. She died of lung cancer in 1990. Thank fucking God she didn't get to live out her life, the rest of her life. Gary. And I hope, yeah, I hope, I hope she suffered. Mm. I would never wish that on any cancer patient, but I hope she suffered in the last couple of years. Yeah, she's definitely a piece of shit. And when they were talking about, like, during her trial and stuff, you know, they're asking her all these questions, and she either blamed it on Sylvia herself. She did all these horrible things to me, and, and then she cast pretty much all of the blame on her children. Sold every single one of them out. Eighteen months for man for eighteen months in a juvenile detention facility too for that that three, asshole three kids, yeah. throwing them around just completely. They should all got life sentences. They were torturing somebody mm-hmm. for months. Yep. So now Sylvia, um, you know, we talked about she was forced to write a letter to her parents. Uh, she started off the letter with "Dear Mom and Dad." Okay. Typical letter from a from a child. But Gertie took the paper, and she told her to start over with two Mr. and Mrs. Likings, which is kind of weird. So the letter goes it's as... A, it's a power trip, too. Yeah. That, that, was, that was a power move, 100%. So the letter goes as follows. This is uh, Sylvia's letter to her parents, dictated by Gertie. I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said that they would pay me if I would give them something. So I got in the car, and they all got what they wanted. And when they got finished, they beat me up, left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put in my stomach, 
I'm a prostitute and proud of it. I have done just about everything that I could do to make Gertie mad and cause Gertie more money than she's got. I've tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I have also cost Gertie doctor bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all of her kids. You can tell it's all the talking points of why she got beat by Gertie. Right. So it's like a, any detective would look at this and be like, so now good. I was going to talk. I was going to say real quick about Jenny too, like throwing that in there to, to whisper to the, the detective that, you know, oh, yeah. get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. Yeah. And that like, took a lot of balls. Yeah. Like a lot of balls. Yep. I think, I think the death of her really snapped her out of the conditioning that she is in at that point. Um, also, too, other children were charged with injury to persons like Anna, Judy, Randy, Leper, and Mike Monroe. What mm. was that from? Like doing, who, doing like little shit, you know, like they would come over and Gertie would be like, oh, I'll throw this bottle at our face. And like the kid would. Yeah. You know. Okay. I, I got Hold on one second. And I guess one of them, Anna, I think it was. I guess uh, Gertie had told, I believe it was Anna, that Sylvia said that her mother was a whore. So then pissed off, Anna started beating the shit out of Sylvia. You know. I think one of the worst things about this is how much abuse didn't get reported that probably happened yeah. uh you know it, obviously the key witness in this was probably jenny mm-hmm. and test like the testimony was probably a lot from what jenny said happened how jenny didn't see all of it so like we we're we're getting a very good detailed account of the abuse there is probably so much more that that never came to light because jenny wasn't around or gertie definitely kept jenny at a distance from it and if that much was going on and she saw it mm-hmm. how much went by under the radar right exactly that's probably the worst yeah story. like all this was this is probably 10 times worse that stuff that that would happen that we don't even know about all the shit that happened down in the basement yeah you know what i mean wait by and you're gonna tell me a 15 year old boy who's beating up a girl didn't fondle her right. do he would just hey, hey gertie i'm going downstairs to, to beat on the, like there's probably so much more that we we don't know about and it's, right. it's hor- it makes me sick to my stomach and they're unable to figure that out yeah and they're not gonna gertie's not gonna rat on like, the kids well, aren't gonna say anything i'm talking medically like during her yeah. her autopsy yeah. because her genitalia was so badly damaged oh, from gertie's repeated kicks to her general area yeah soda bottle and soda bottles and god knows what else it's just sickening. Now, going back to the letter, um, when the police finally showed up, Gertie was quick to give this letter to the police. You know, oh, look, this is what happened. Yeah, proof. This is what happened to her. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, she wanted to separate herself as far away as she possibly could from what was done to Sylvia. But there was no hiding the fact that Gertie was 100% behind this. Yeah. 100%. And especially when, you know, like you said, Jenny kind of whispered to the officer, you know, get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. That just, like, confirmed it. Now, going into a little bit about what happened to everyone, you know, after Sylvia's death. Uh, we already talked about the, the sentences and, you know, the time served and everything. But Richard Hobbs, the one who did the majority of the carving, he died of cancer at the age of 21. Um, so only a handful of years after after all this happened. Coy Hubbard, who was the one that practiced judo on Sylvia and physically assaulted her, uh, he served time for robbery uh, after his uh, stint in reformatory. Uh, he obtained work as a mechanic and was later tried but acquitted for the murder of two men. I don't know if he's passed away or not. I didn't find anything. Uh, now, John Banaszewski, uh, he changed his name to John Blake. And years later, he would speak publicly for the first time regarding Sylvia's death. And he said he could not adequately explain why he and the others turned on the girl the way they did. 
and he acknowledged that his punishment was inadequate for the huh. terrible crime. Oh, good. At least he acknowledged it. Uh, he he said uh, a more severe punishment would have been just. So, hand that to him, I guess. Uh, he has worked as a truck driver, a realtor, and served as a lay pastor. Uh, he eventually got married, had three children. Uh, he was disabled by uh, diabetes, blurred vision, and he required the assistance of a cane or a walker to get around in his later years. And he passed away in 2005. Uh, Stephanie Banaszewski, she became a school teacher. She also married and had kids. Uh, she was last known to be living in Florida. Uh, Paula. Yeah, this is the one I'm, I'm curious yeah. about. Paula had moved to Iowa and was said to have lived on a small farm there. Oh, that's probably where Gertie went, yeah. went after she got out. Right. Uh, she had her name changed in order to assimilate into normal life. Now, in her later years, she worked as a teacher's aide for 12 years until someone, an anonymous source, reported that she was, in fact, Paula Banaszewski, and she had a criminal record, and she served time for Sylvia's death. Uh, upon this, she was immediately fired. Good. I haven't seen anything that where she passed away either. But. So now for the Likens family, uh, they continue to endure considerable hardship. Uh, Jenny Likens, she enrolled in the Job Corps pro- program in 1966 and later got a job in a bank. She also married. When she saw that her tormentor, Gertie Beneshevsky, uh, that she died, she clipped out the newspaper article and mailed it to her mother with a note reading some good news damn old gertie died ha 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 i'm happy about that jenny likens uh, she died of a heart attack on june 23rd 2004 at the age of 54 and uh it's believed that the memories of the crime never left her mind uh she became a nervous recluse in her final years of course and it's believed that a delivery person knocked on her door, which scared her, and that's how she had got her heart attack because she was so cut off from society. You know, uh, Lester, the father, uh, he greatly suffered from lapse of judgment for the rest of his life. He worked in the gaming industry in Las Vegas uh, before moving in with Diana. Uh, he died February twenty second, two thousand thirteen. Uh, I think that's a cop out. Lester didn't fucking care. He can say that, like, oh, I struggled. But he didn't even. Nobody cared for this girl. I don't. Right. I don't care what people say after the fact. It's, nobody yeah. cared. If you really truly cared about your kid, you wouldn't do that. anybody Anybody listening would know this. Right. Anybody who has kids would know, understand this. Yeah, I would never leave you, my daughter in that situation. Uh, Betty Likens, according to Jenny, was a good mother. Lester and Betty, you know, obviously they had their troubled marriage and split up several times. Uh, she filed for a divorce from Lester in 1966 and eventually got remarried. Uh, it says that Betty never really got over Sylvia's death. Uh, she passed away in 1998 at the age of 71. And after her death, there was a suitcase filled with sympathy letters and pictures of Sylvia that Betty called her suitcase of sorrow. <laughs> Benny Lincoln's story is nearly as sad as that of his twin sister, Jenny. Uh, Benny never married. And he was diagnosed uh, as a schizophrenic after his military service. His decomposed body was found August 3rd, 1999. And the body remained unclaimed and was cremated at the cost of the state. And his ashes were buried in a grave in Oak Hill Cemetery in Lebanon. The same cemetery that Sylvia was buried in. 
Uh, apparently, Lester Likens was in the process of reaching out to help Benny. When his letter was returned, Mark deceased. That's how he found out how Benny died. Sylvia's older brother, Danny, was living on his own and barely scraping by doing odd jobs at the time of the crime. He spent much of his time in local pool halls and had a serious gambling problem, made worse by drugs and alcohol. Uh, not much is known about Danny's life for the last several years. Uh, Danny just sort of disappeared until 2014 when he was booked into the Clark County, Nevada jail. And he passed away in 2019. The best thing that came out of this story is the dark cloud that followed everybody that was involved. Mm. I almost It's like redemption. I love it. Yeah. I, it uh, it's, it's crazy. Everybody had fucked up lives, cancer and this, this and that drug addictions and it seems like everyone had a horrible demise yeah this one really messed me up dave I'm not gonna lie yeah. i'm in my feelings about this episode i you know we we we, we joke we like we joke around we hear crazy stories mm. but this stuff just it gets under my skin yeah there's not there's not many times where I'll, I'll read a story or it actually affects me to the point where it weighs on my mind yeah you know and I've actually had, uh, while I was writing this story, I actually had a dream about being in that house, you know? And, Oof. you know, a lot of the details. Yeah, you, can, you can smell, like, the yeah. dust and, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this story really, really... It, like, we, like to have a, we like to have a good time here and joke around. You, you know how we are. Yeah. We, off camera and off, off the mics and stuff. And th- yeah. this one just, you know... You just will definitely leave here. I'll yeah. definitely be thinking about this tonight when in bed. Yeah, this story. Like e- even even sitting here now, there's kind of like a weight in this room. Oh yeah, you know what I mean? without a doubt. I don't know. You can feel it. So that'll do it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a review. And don't forget to become a criminal on Patreon. Visit patreon.com backslash criminal af. Links to our Patreon, PayPal, socials, merchandise, and more are in the episode description. Also, too, guys, if you want to see the video versions of these podcasts, go to youtube.com slash criminalaf. And that'll do it for this episode of Criminal AF, saying sayonara from Studio Chloroform. Keep your head on a swivel and take care until next time. See See ya. ya.